Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive faith community deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. So does your family or friends have a funny name for something that is like an inside joke, but it also has a lot of meaning? Well, ours is the word chi, and sometimes it's chi-chi. You spell that C-H-I. Now, before you jump to any conclusions, let me share some history, give a definition, and share some examples. So where does the word chi come from in my family? One day, a few years ago, my family, including my parents' dog, were all visiting my 91-year-old grandma. My grandma called the dog to come closer to her by saying, oh, come here, little Shishi, referring to the dog as Shishi. Now, my sister and I laughed like we usually do when my grandma makes up these nonsense words, but for some reason, this one caught on, and for whatever reason, we changed Shishi to Chichi. My partner and I started to use chi as a form of endearment. I guess words like honey or sweetie just don't fit us, so we use chi. Chi, have a good day at work. Chi, chi, I love you. Chi, did you fold the laundry? We also tested it out with a few of our closest friends, and they loved it. So now we use chi in replace of names of close friends and some family members. So we didn't stop there, no. We also use chi to explain objects or an aesthetic that brings us joy, and is usually something that is unique. So for example, when we were decorating for the holidays, we had a chi room. This room had all sorts of crazy decorations, like llamas wearing Santa hats hanging from the windows, cotton balls of all sorts of colors spread out over the table, fun lights, and a big poster of Clark Griswold from Christmas Vacation. It was all very chi, because it made us smile. The word chi um, actually has, um, is a real word, and that it has several definitions. However, to us, we apply our own definition based on what my grandma said that one day, to describe someone we love deeply or something that brings us joy. In reflecting on this funny and seemingly crazy word, Chi actually has a lot of significance and reminds me of what is sacred in my life. When I use the word chi, it's often referring to someone who I love deeply, my partner, a close friend, or my sister. In a way, it's a code word. It helps me pause and identify those people in my life who give me the space to be goofy and most importantly, allow me to be my essential self. They are the ones who I feel most connected to. They're my chi's and people who I want to stay close to. It also makes me think about who in my life I maybe want to call chi, but I'm just not ready yet because that relationship will take more nurturing or one that I want to reassess. When I use the word chi, largely around other people, I'm I'm reminded how liberating it feels to not take myself so seriously, which can be difficult. It's also, you know, it's a silly word, and when when people hear it, they probably think, who is this guy, and what is he saying? I mean, I can just ask all of you. Nonetheless, it acts as an important guidepost for me to tune into what is important in life. So it's the cheese in my life that are sacred to me. So I ask you, 
Who and what in your life would you describe as chi? Come, let us worship. Sacrifice is a powerful, ancient, evocative word. Within seconds of hearing this word, certain images fill our eyes. We see Abraham slowly climbing that mountain, contemplating the sacrificial killing of his son Isaac to show God how much he truly loved him and was willing to obey God's will. Sacrifice is a powerful, evocative image that conjures visions of animals slaughtered on in rituals to bind a community together in a celebratory feast over the end of a drought or the plentiful nature of a harvest. Sacrifice can be a visual and visceral and vivid concept that attracts our curiosity but also may repel us morally. Sacrifice is also described as a blessed act, a holy reverence, a necessary right to cleanse the soul of an individual or a community. In Judaism, God introduces the korbanot, offerings or sacrifice, by which the Israelites are brought near to God, closer to the altar, binding them in the most holy of holy places. While these biblical and anthropological images of sacrifice have limited resonance for us today as Americans, our self-obsessed culture has made self-sacrifice a term worthy of consideration. We honor the self-sacrifice of the soldier. We commend the self-sacrifice of the parent on a traveling sports team. We praise the self-sacrifice of a partner who puts their career on hold to support the aspirations of their spouse. We use self-sacrifice to remind others that we are willing to give up something for some greater moral, generative, or virtuous good. Now this self-sacrifice thing can manifest in a number of ways. In an unjust political society that is subject to capriciousness, Self-sacrifice can be both necessary and powerful. Gandhi pledged in 1932 to starve himself to death over an issue related to untouchability. Black parents sent their children to that school in 1957 in Little Rock in the face of known and, and deadly mob violence. These were acts of sacrifice in the sense that people voluntarily risked something of great value to achieve a political end. Now, sometimes sacrifice does aspire one to selflessness and generosity of spirit and generosity of resources. When we witness this type of sacrifice, we often praise it as the perfect surrender 
that anticipates no return for this good and kind act. On the other hand, we consider some forms of self-sacrifice as martyrdom, thus detrimental to our selfhood and harmful to our well-being. This sacrificial erasure of the self for others can completely destroy an individual's esteem. Think about those you know who have been in domestic violence situations, who stay in bad marriages for the sake of the children, for the reputation of the family, for the sake of appearances. Clearly, there are many readings and definitions of sacrifice, but today I want to explore sacrifice as a political act. Sacrifice as a political act often associated with social violence. Now these days, political and social sacrifice seem ubiquitous. From the rhetorical mobilizations at the southern border to the ideological sacrifice of austerity for the poor and largesse for the rich, to the necessary constructs of neoliberalism, to the privatization, deregulation, and unfettered free markets over public institutions and government, and the lack of urgent adjustments to address the changing climate, Friends, today, America is experiencing sacrifice as an intentional machine gun mounted on a hill of lies that is aimed at the rule of law, as aimed at the truth, and it's aimed at the role of intellectual curiosity and expertise. Everywhere we turn, it seems some form of sacrifice is rearing its head, demanding tribute and governed by an algebra of expected returns. The transactional nature of sacrifice creates unholy alliances and disturbing binary outcomes of either or. Now let's deconstruct this a little bit. Now I'm not gonna to go too Derrida philosophical on you, I'm gonna try not to. But deconstruction is a good thing, not just because you break things apart, because you can see them in all of their clarity. Just think going to Spoon and Stable or Alma or another foodie restaurant and seeing the deconstructed bread pudding or the deconstructed whatever. You, know, you get to see things in all of their clarity. So like a chef, I made for you a deconstructed sermon about sacrifice. <laughs> So when we, when we do deconstruct sacrifice, we see that sacrifice is a form of violence that places itself in relationship to a desired effect, such as the gain or benefit that is necessitated by the loss or destruction of something. Now call this something the offering. Deconstruction over here, gain over here. The conscious act of sacrifice right here links the two together, calibrating them in a commiseration mediated by destructive violence. The offering might be a black rooster or a little bag of tobacco or a chicken, but it could just as well be a species, a landscape, the heart of a captured enemy, 
or the youth of a nation during war. What matters is the necessity of this destruction within a logic that renders the destruction intelligible and worthwhile as a means to some higher gain. Now, sometimes the terms are blunt, issued as a judgment. We hear it all the time. This species is common. Drill the well. Uninteresting or of little concern to us. This landscape is worthless, remote, uninhabitable. It can be destroyed. The minimal value of what stands to be destroyed will be recovered many times over in the protracted return. But friends, sacrifice also comes in the disguise of moral control. Just pay attention to the arguments that weave through the next housing development debates in Minneapolis City Council. The next culled spaces, the next culled species, the next police review board, the next military intervention, the next welfare cut. Sacrifice is almost always a contingency, a contingency disguised more or less well or efficiently as a mechanism. It's a mechanism, a mechanism in which loss and gain have been commiserated the balance settled, usually with a net surplus, trading a mountain for jobs in the mining sector, a forest for a highway so you can have a quicker commute. Sacrifice constitutes itself around a central node of violence that has agency, it has power. Somewhere at some point, a return is calculated, a calculation is made, a decision executed. Now this is the challenge we find in our reading today. Space, how many of you remember Derek Bell? He died in 2011. Anybody here remember Der Derek Bell? One person in this service and one person in the last service. We got some reading to do, folks. <laughs> he was the first black tenured professor at Harvard Law and he was the pre-Cornell West, and he quit because they wouldn't hire a woman of color in the law school. Uh, he's an amazing fella, and he was also the founder of the discipline, critical race theory, which is a fascinating uh, academic discipline. Space Traders came out in 1992, and it's part of a book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well. It's a series of short stories. I encourage you to go home, get it on Amazon, five bucks used. And as you hear in the reading, the allegory explores what happens when these aliens made first contact with the United States using a holographic projection of Ronald Reagan, which I just thought was brilliant. Because I did find Ronald Reagan's, I never missed a press conference when he was president, because his voice was kind of soothing. He kind of lulled you in, despite what he was saying. So as proof of their power, they also demonstrated to the United States that they could turn the Statue of Liberty into gold, and they completely cleaned all the polluted air over Los Angeles to prove that they really did have that power to clean the environment. And the aliens had only one price for that service. All the black Americans must be given to them for purposes unknown. Now, will African Americans become food? Remember Soylent Green? Anybody remember that? Oh, yeah. Will they become food, pets, subjects for experimentation? Perhaps they'll be 
feasted upon or protected, or maybe they'll be worshipped. The aliens provided no answers. In an ultimate solution, is this the ultimate solution to the question of centuries-old Negro problem? A Republican president in his administration thought, well, maybe so. And he was aided by black conservatives in his cabinet. And so the debate went on and on around the merits of the offer, and eventually they decided that the American people should vote on the matter. Now, black Americans are a minority group. Consequently, they are outvoted by the majority. Of course, this outcome has the superficial veneer of being fair because the outcome was democratic. Now, the safety, security, and freedom of black Americans are treated as something debatable instead of an inalienable civil and human right. Now, Space Traders concludes with millions of black Americans, much like their ancestors who were loaded into the bowels of slave ships centuries before, being marched off at gunpoint into the cargo holds of the alien vessels. Now this story becomes a canvas for Dr. Bell's portrait of the wise, the foolish, the weak, the strong, and the venal characters of both races who respond to this challenge to the nation's soul. The return is calculated, though. A calculation has been made. A decision executed. Now, when the book came out in 92, I remember everybody was reading it and having debates about it. It was very controversial. A lot was written about it, and you can go online and read tons of articles about it. And I remember talking with my black friends and my white friends, and sometimes we were together talking about it. And it our reactions to this story reminded me a few years later, as I look back, of our reactions to the OJ trial in 95. Totally different responses. Many white friends were horrified by the story in Derrick Bell's book. Absolutely unable to believe that such a vote could happen and in the future, in the year 2000? Now, many black people were horrified that white people were so naive to believe that it could not happen. And then there was still yet another group of people, particularly I was part of that group, who had an inverted sense of the story. Um, I thought that the sacrificial nature of the event might be a necessity of this, the destruction of, of where I was now. That the sacrifice was maybe logical, that it might render some intelligible and worthwhile result for me, perhaps a mean to some higher gain. Now, these discussions went on late into the night, and we pondered leaving the U.S. for perhaps a better life with the aliens. I, for one, was one of them. Many of us saying anything might be better than this place, I was willing to take the trip in that spaceship because of the uncertainty of sacrifice and the unknowability of the future may provide me with hope. That uncertainty may give me a hope that I did not have. I have certainty about the history, the 400 year history of this country. That is clear. But the possibility of another way, what would it be like to live in a world where I am not vilified or minimized or 
called on by 911 for simply going about my daily life or objectified or pacified by a system that struggled so desperately to obliterate me, what would that be like? Think about it. The sacrificial offering must be destructible, but also it cannot be worthless. And I am not worthless. If anything, it must be exalted because the destruction of its value is what renders the sacrifice worthy, even heroic. Sacrifice infuses the destruction of value with value, justifying itself not only in the prospect of a return, but also in the inherent nobility of surrender. Here the idea becomes not just dangerous, but insidious, continuously threatening to identify destructive surrender, not just as moral action, but as the very ground of morality. To be good, to be a good citizen, a good person is to surrender what you value, what you love for the higher cause. In Space Traders, one of the ideas floated by the government was to create a selective service for black people to volunteer to go with the aliens as a duty to country. Friends, as Unitarian Universalists, we have imperatives as people of faith to be spiritually animated by the sacrificial violence all around us. We need to be animated enough to take the knife out of Abraham's hand before he blindly follows God. It might mean taking the knife figuratively out of a relative's hand who believes that Trump needs to be elected again before they go blindly following them. We need to be animated enough to see the sacrificial violence in policies that appeal to our heads and ignore our hearts. We need to be animated enough to dismantle false equivalencies of sacrifice. We must be animated so we can demand answers. We must be animated so we can resist the duplicity of sacrifice. We must make our faith three-dimensional enough to resist sacrifice out loud. When people of faith and goodness charge head-on into that sacrificial altar and destroy it, the mechanisms of sacrificial thinking will be dismantled, their logics revealed and demystified, and their weapons will become inoperable. So pause for a minute at the next justified sacrifice, the next trade-off sacrifice, and dwell on this. You may be in the presence of a primordial form of sacrifice that veils itself in obviousness, hiding among the lines of spreadsheet calculations and seemingly innocent platitudes. Like it or not, you will find yourself asking questions. Where is the violence? How does it hide? Who has the right? Whose hopes stand to be fulfilled? 
Whose losses are compelled? And where do I stand as a person of faith? Blessed be. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.